Uh, well, you can open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. As you're turning there, I, I want to tell you of what took place. December 1st, 1955, Montgomery, Alabama, Rosa Parks, an African-American seamstress, left work, boarded a bus for home. As the bus was crowded, the bus driver ordered Parks to get up, give up her seat to a white passenger. Now, Montgomery, Alabama's buses at that time were segregated and the, the seats in front were reserved for whites only. The blacks had to sit in the back of the bus. But if the bus was crowded and all the whites only seats were filled, black people expected to give up their seats. A black person sitting, a white person stood, would never be tolerated in racist South 50 years ago. Well, Rose had had enough of such humiliation. She refused to give up her seat. She said, I felt that I had the right to stay where I was. I wanted that particular driver to know that we were being treated unfairly as individuals and as people. And the bus driver had her arrested. Martin Luther King then heard about what took place, heard about her brave defiance and launched a boycott of the Montgomery buses. And uh, 17,000 black residents of Montgomery boycotted the buses there in uh, Montgomery for over a year. As things worked its way through the, through the court system, finally got to the Supreme Court who declared it uh, unconstitutional that a black person have to give up the seat to a white person. It's just one of the many steps that African Americans have made and taken in the civil rights movement as they have sought to um, pursue their unalienable right to, right, li- right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The fight for civil rights in our country, regardless of race, color, and creed, has been a, a long fight, and quite frankly, it continues to be a fight for the African-American culture in our midst. And, and don't think that simply because we have an African-American president that the battle's over. It's not. As long as people are in the flesh... They'll continue to be culture wars. As, as long as there are minority cultures, there will always be clashes like that, civil rights. If we were in the minority, whites generally are here, uh, we would fight for civil rights for ourselves if we felt oppressed for sure. And uh, all you have to do is look at Rockford, a racially divided town, have some difficulties there. We have a long way to go in our society. Now, the reason I bring that up is because one of the heroes in the African-American culture is Moses, who brought the people of Israel out of slavery. He's the one that we are going to look at today as we look at the one who brought an entire nation out of the bondage of Egyptian slavery into freedom to worship on their own. So Hebrews 11 is, is where we are. Before we read our text, I want to just remind you for the past several months, we have been in here, I've counted, it's two and a half months. We've been here in Hebrews chapter 11. I told you at the beginning of it, we're just going to slow down and kind of savor each of these people as we look and reflect upon um, just the great heroes of the faith. We see example after example after example of those people who walk by faith. I think 19 times here in this chapter, we see by faith, by faith, by faith. It's the point. He said, how many people here we have walking by faith? We've seen the faith of Abel and Enoch and Noah. And all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Last week we looked at the faith of Moses a, a little bit. We're going to continue this week to look at Moses. And, 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 and I feel the need this morning, I do this every several weeks, to kind of put Hebrews chapter 11 in its context. The book of Hebrews, of course, is written 
to uh, Hebrew people, that is, people of a Jewish background who, who've heard the claims of Jesus the Messiah, been interested in Him, have come into the church, have experienced some fellowship of Christians, but now they had some doubts. And particularly the doubts were coming from the Jewish brethren who were casting doubts on Jesus and who He is, just His office as Messiah, just the substance of a church. Arguments may have come that, to say, hey, you, you're a church, you don't have any real place of worship, but we have the temple. Where, where are your priests? Where are your sacrifices? Where are your rituals? You don't have any concrete forms of, of worship. Whereas we have the priests and we have the sacrifices. And, and you've forsaken the Old Covenant. Whereas they had in some measure for the, the new. It says what is old is passing away. But the new has come. And they're turning, these Jewish people, we're turning them to, to trust why, why are you trusting in Jesus? Why don't you trust in the heritage, in the law? You're turning from trusting in the law. This is what we've always done. And, and they're feeling this pull from the Jewish people and the writer to the Hebrews is writing to warn them because rather than turning back and preferring your rituals and sacrifice and law-keeping to faith in Jesus, you need to believe and trust in Jesus. Trust in Him and Him alone. And over and over and over again, the writer of the Epistle of Hebrews directed his readers to the supremacy of Jesus. He's better his revelation is better. It's better than angels. Better than Moses. Better than Joshua. Better than Aaron. Better than any of the priests. In fact, the, the priesthood of Jesus, I alluded to in my opening prayer, is better than any priest that you could ever have. His covenant is better. His sacrifice is better. His tabernacle, though it is not seen on the earth, is better because Jesus entered the heavenly tabernacle. That that the Jews had was only on earth. It's much better. Therefore, the argument goes, since Jesus is better, trust in Him. Don't trust in the... Shadows, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 calls the law and all those things of the priests and the rituals and the, the, the sacrifice and the festival. Those are all shadows pointing us to Jesus. Trust in Him, as chapter 10, verse 35 says, don't throw away your confidence because it has a great reward. Because you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. It's my righteous one, verse 38 of chapter 10, lives by Faith. So don't shrink back to destruction, but have faith to the preserving of your soul. It's a call of the book of, of Hebrews. Be like the Hebrews, the heroes of the faith, and live by faith. In fact, that's the only way to please God. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without Him, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. See, the single characteristic of all these Old Testament saints is they lived by faith. They lived by faith. They died by faith. They were made righteous by faith. As Noah mentions there, he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And so the writer's calling the Hebrew people to trust in Jesus. And what he's trying to do is form a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Saying this is how the Old Testament saints, this is how all of them lived. They all lived by faith. They all trusted God. And look at how they trusted God in these mighty ways. And for us believers in the New Covenant... We have much to learn from the Old Testament saints. So they didn't know fully about Jesus and how all that sacrifice worked out, but they knew what faith was about. They knew what living by faith meant and were called to live the same way that they did. In fact, that's the premise of my preaching through Hebrews 11 is this, that these examples set forth of faith are given for us to follow. So my exhortations I've been to you is just say, okay, these people are living by faith. What, what of their faith can we follow? and let us imitate their examples of faith. And so we should look at the faith of Abel and realize that he was one who worshipped God in a right way. So let's worship God like Abel did. 
We can look at someone like Enoch and say that, oh, he walked with God so much so that he pleased God with his walk that he was taken up so he would not see death. We should seek to have the faith of Noah who had a strong witness for God even when many didn't believe. We should have the faith of the patriarchs who trusted God for the promises to come even though they never really realized the covenants, who realized the promises in full. We should seek last week like the faith of Moses' parents who chose life for their child over the laws of the land. We should seek to have the faith of Moses that chose ill-treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. We should choose the faith of Moses who considered the approach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And this morning, we're going to continue to look at the faith of Moses and it's going to bleed into the faith of the Israelite people. Okay, Our text is three verses, verses 27, 28, and 29. Let me read them for you. By faith he left Egypt... That is Moses leaving Egypt. In fact, um, that's the title of my message this morning is Leaving Egypt because all of these verses here speak about leaving Egypt. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen. And by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they, that's all of Israel, passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Three verses in the text. They cover 12 chapters in the book of Exodus. Uh, I think the biggest struggle I had in my message preparation this week was how much of Exodus to include and how much just to tell you and how much just to gloss over the details as being unimportant not pertinent to our, our task this week. So I tried, to, I tried to do what I could do. But these chapters also, though they're 12 chapters of the book of Exodus, are very familiar. Children are, are told the stories. I mean, what story could get greater than the, the ten plagues? In fact, I bet that there are, are children here who can tell me what the ten plagues of Exodus were. Do you think that's true? Parents? How many of you parents can name the ten plagues? Really? How many? How, really? How, if you're a parent here, can you name the ten plagues? How many kids can name the ten plagues? Who wants to give it a shot? Andrew, you want to give it a shot? Who wants? Who, maybe someone else over here. KB, do you know him? I know my kids know him. Water in the Niles turns blood. Can you do that? You can sing them. Here we go. Water, I'm going to say them. Water in the Niles turned to blood. Frogs, gnats, swarms of insects, pestilence on livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, death of the firstborn. Okay? This is a temp- I mean, kids know that, and we adults should know it better. All right? These ten plagues, what's, what's more exciting than these plagues coming? I mean, it's great. And then the story of the Passover, like verse 28 has here for us, where, where God is passing over the house. I mean, what can be more exciting than that? I mean, this is better than Santa Claus coming at midnight doing his thing, right? Final destruction of the Egyptians of the Red Sea, right? The party of the Red Sea. Israel passes through and then the Red Sea. I mean, what's better than that? I mean, this is sci-fi big time, but it's reality. 
when the, the walls of the, the Red Sea are up and they're like glass, like, a, like along the, the side of a wall, like they're walking through a corridor. These are stories that are engaged with children. They're, they're engaged with, they're very familiar. And so we'll just rehash over them again this morning. Hebrews chapter 11, 27-29, leaving Egypt. I'm just going to pull out some aspects of how it is that they left Egypt. My first point is this, no fear. Verse 27, by faith Moses left Egypt, and here it is, not fearing. There's no fear. Not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is unseen. And I think about application here at this point. There are many of us today who have many fears. Um, my fears are different than your fears. But there are fears in our life. Maybe fears of the future. Fears of uncertainty. Maybe fears of people. Maybe fears of speaking. Maybe fears of flying. Maybe fears of failure. Maybe fears of something that you have to do in the future you don't really want to do. I just hope as we look at Moses, as we see his faith, it will help us to conquer our fears as well because that's what it is. It's by faith he left, not fearing. It's faith that conquered his fearing. And I'll just let the Spirit of God apply the application to your heart, but I just say this, you need to be those who believe and trust in God, that even that believing and trusting God is sufficient to overcome all your fears. Now, before we dig into this, we need to think about what this verse is talking about because Moses left Egypt twice. First time is when he fled to Midian and the second time is when he led the people of Israel out of Egypt. These are different events. Happened 40 years apart. Different circumstances. The first flight, Moses went by himself. And the second flight, Moses left for the entire nation. Perhaps as much as two million people probably. And so the question comes, to which of these events does this refer? Well, the reason really why I bring this up is because when I first worked through the book of Hebrews um, and came here verse 27, I just easily thought that this was Moses fleeing to Midian. I mean, after all, it's coming after verse 24, 25, 26... When, Pharaoh, when Moses grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and he identified himself with the people of God. And we talked about that a little bit last week, that he chose the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And, and that really coming out party, if you will, happened in Exodus chapter 2 when he saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren, and then the Bible says he looked this way and that to make sure no one was there. And then he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. And all went well. Until the next day, when some Hebrew men were fighting, and uh, Moses tried to stop the conflict, and they said, "Who made you a judge over us? You're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian?" And Moses, though he looked this way and that way, maybe didn't look behind him. I'm not sure. Somebody saw. Somebody noticed. Somebody knew. Then Moses was afraid, is what Exodus 2:14 says. Catch that. Moses was afraid. Surely the matter has become known. The next verse says, When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled land of Midian. Now you try to match that with verse 27, and it says that Moses left Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king. When Moses left from Midian, he was scared of his own death. That's not what this is referring to. So that seems like what it is. It doesn't match. Rather, verse 27 is talking about Moses fleeing Egypt and the bondage of slavery along with two million Jews into the wilderness. 
That's what this verse is talking about. So, you know, this is all 40 years after he chose the reproach of Christ. He was out in the wilderness tending sheep. It wasn't just one event, by the way. Also, verse 27, leaving Egypt is a whole series of events. It's not one person leaving a country. It's many, many people. And the events here are not just one verse or one paragraph or one chapter in the Old Testament. Multiple chapters, like I've said. And through all these events, it was the faith of Moses that shone through. In fact, I did a little search here this week from Exodus chapter 3 through Exodus chapter 14 when they finally got out of the land. Not once does it mention that Moses was afraid of the wrath of the king. Not once. Not once it even gives you a hint of that. Now, now when God came to Moses in chapters 3 and 4 with the burning bush, to be sure Moses had a lack of faith right there. His faith wasn't perfect. But it wasn't fear when he confronted the, the king of Egypt. And, and he had reason to fear for sure. I mean, can you imagine coming into Pharaoh's chamber representing a workforce, a free workforce, if you will, a slave workforce of two million people and saying, um, the Lord God has said, let my people go. In ancient times, it was dangerous to enter into the, the throne of the king. You remember when Esther, entering before King Ahasuerus without being summoned, you know what could have happened to her, right? She could have died easily. And Pharaoh and Ahasuerus are a thousand years apart, but the principles of the reign are still the same. A monarchy where the word of the king stands. Moses could easily have lost his neck if Pharaoh had determined so. But you don't, you don't sense fear from him. And here you even find out that he did so without fear. And, and then think about this. Moses comes into Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh's response the first time was far from positive. In fact, it was quite negative. He called the Israelites lazy, increased their workload, and the backlash then upon the Hebrews coming to Moses was great. They said to Moses, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight. Now that would have been enough for me. <laughs> Just to, to go in, Pharaoh says, No, okay, and these people are mad at me now. It's kind of like, what's, what's going on here? But Moses didn't. He continued to obey the Lord and continued to go time after time after time after time into Pharaoh's presence. He went before Pharaoh again, requesting to let the sons of Israel go. Pharaoh refused. That's the incident where the staff became a, a snake. Later, Moses went to the Nile said, Hey, I know this is where Pharaoh bathes and waited for Pharaoh to come down and bathe there. And he said, Hey, Pharaoh... Thus says the Lord, let my people go. They may serve me in the wilderness. Pharaoh's heart was hard. And so that's when, right down there by the Nile, God says, okay, I'm going to turn the Nile into blood. And turn all the, the water there into blood. Drinking water is hard to come by, but Pharaoh's heart was hard. He refused to listen to Moses. Then again, he went, entered his presence and said, let my people go. They may serve me. If you refuse, behold, I'm going to smite your whole territory with frogs. And of course, his heart was hard. The land was filled with frogs in houses and beds and ovens and kneading bowls. Frogs every place. Later, Moses and Aaron stepped out, stretched out his staff so the gnats would come upon the whole land. Still, his heart was hard. Then Moses came before Pharaoh and said, Let my people go, that they may serve me. If you do not let me go, behold, I'm going to send a swarm of flies on you and your servants, your people around the houses. Then Moses came and threatened Pharaoh with 
the livestock, he didn't let them go. And then came the boils, and still Pharaoh refused to let them go. And then the heavy hail, if Pharaoh would refuse, and he refused. And then came the locusts and the darkness. And then finally, with the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, is when Pharaoh finally succumbed and cried out, Rise up! Go it out from among my people, both you and your sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord, as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds, you have said. Go and bless me also. Kind of his heart was crushed at that point. So the people of Israel left 430 years after slavery in fulfillment of a prophecy from Genesis 15, verse 13. According to the promise made to Abraham, they'd be slaved in a foreign land for 400 years. And through it all, no fear in Moses standing before the king. And you have to think there's every reason to feel to fear. There are really two reasons, two ways in which Pharaoh could have stopped the plagues, as I see it. I mean, one is he could have um, let the Israel, people of Israel go. That would have stopped the plagues. But specifically, it says in the Old Testament, like chapter 10, verse 1, God says, no, I've hardened his heart so that I might multiply my signs among them, so that I might be glorified, so that you can tell in the hearing of your children and your grandchildren, and so that Rock Valley Bible Church in years to come could tell of how great our God is. That's what God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But if his heart would have been soft, he would have let the people go and that would have stopped the plagues. The second way I thought of that Pharaoh could have stopped the plagues is that he could have killed Moses. That would have... I mean, humanly speaking, it would have stopped it. Can you imagine, from Pharaoh's perspective, this guy keeps coming and, and bringing these plagues. Every time he comes, these plagues are going to come. And he's like the reason for it. And all these plagues are going to come. You just chop down the guy and maybe the plagues would start stop coming. I think there was every reason why Pharaoh could have killed him. And Moses wasn't even anyone special. He had no rank, no authority, no um, political position in the Egyptian system. He wasn't one from whom Pharaoh sought counsel or advice. I mean, think about it. He was an 80-year-old man with a staff in his hand. And Pharaoh didn't touch him. He could have squished him like a bug. And he didn't. Why? Well, I think the clue comes a little bit here in verse 27. Is that Abraham, I'm sorry, Moses, he stood before Pharaoh, had no fear. He didn't fear the wrath of the king. Proverbs 20, verse 2 says that the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. And he who provokes him forth to anger forfeits his life. But Moses, not being afraid of Pharaoh, I think Pharaoh sensed that some. And I think that begs the question, when Pharaoh went in to see Pharaoh, who was afraid of who? I think that Pharaoh had a a fear and an esteem for Moses that, that kept him from killing him. Apparently Moses had learned well. The Lord is with me. What shall I fear? What can man do to me? Pharaoh can't do anything to me. He certainly knew what Jesus is talking about. Don't, don't fear a man who can kill the body, but fear him who can throw the body and the soul into hell. I think 40 years of exile can change a man. Also, he had an encounter with God that may have changed him too. But of Pharaoh, we read in Exodus 11, verse 3, that Moses was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and the sight of all the people. Moses was respected among the people, and I think that put a healthy fear of Moses in Pharaoh's heart. My guess, though, is that Pharaoh was filled with fear of Moses. Proverbs 28, verse 1 says, The righteous are as bold as a lion, 
And I believe that Pharaoh felt the righteous roar of Moses as this fearless man stood before him. And I believe it wasn't Moses who was trembling in his boots. It was Pharaoh who was trembling in his boots. Now, one might argue, well, it's easy for Moses because he had this burning bush experience, right? You remember that? He's off shepherding the the flocks of Jethro out in the field and he noticed this bush that was burning with fire and not consumed. He went to investigate closely and there's a, a voice that came and said, Moses, Moses, do not come near. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then God told him of His plan to deliver His people. What an amazing opportunity, right? To see this miracle of God. To hear the voice of God. Isn't that what helped Moses sustain in these times? You might argue that, but look at, look at the way verse 27 argues. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for that is because he endured how? He endured as seeing him who is unseen. It's very helpful for us here because the writer here isn't saying, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, because he had this great epiphany and God spoke to him personally and he was thereby strengthened to walk without fear. But he doesn't say that. He says he endured as seeing him who is unseen. And and the point is this, though Moses had this personal encounter with God, he, he didn't look back to the burning bush for strength. He was looking upward to God for strength. He was looking to see Him who He couldn't see for strength. In fact, is that not the definition of faith? Hebrews 11.1 Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It was Moses. He had this conviction of the things not seen. He had the conviction of the character of God, the person of God, which he could not see. And that's what helped him. And that, by the way, that's where good news comes to us. Because that's where we stand in our walk of faith. We can be like Moses. We can walk by faith and not by sight. We can be like Moses, be bold as a lion. And like Moses, we don't need to to fear man. And just as Moses had no fear, we can live without fear today. And what's the the key? Seeing Him was unseen. In 1 Peter 1, these people who are going through some tremendous trials were said this, and though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but you believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, as the context dictates, in the midst of your various trials which are coming upon you. And so likewise, as the trials of fear come upon your lives, which maybe you can't, which are different for all of you, as you think and discern those, I just say, church family, you can overcome those by trusting in the Lord and being like Moses Seeing him was unseen. Well, that's my first point. We see Moses leaving Egypt with no fear. Second, we see Moses leaving Egypt with no death. Okay, by this I'm talking about the Israelites who escaped death. Right? I'm talking about how they escaped death, but the Egyptians had death. Of course, I'm talking about the Passover, which comes in verse 28, which reads this: By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. This takes us back to Exodus chapters 11 and 12. takes us back to the 10th plague, the worst of all the plagues. The plague that finally tipped Pharaoh over the edge to let the people of Israel go. 
And you know what? God knew it was the last. God knew that this is the one that was going to tip him over. The Lord said to Moses before even he, he executed this plague, one more plague I'll bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that, he will let you go from here. And what a great lesson. Proverbs 22, verse 1 says that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of, of God. He channels it whatever way he wants. And, and here's God constantly hardening Pharaoh's heart. For this reason, I raised you up so that I might demonstrate my miracles among you. And here it is. Right? And the last plague says, okay, it's time to go. Right? Pharaoh's going to let you go. And that's exactly what he does. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here completely. Remember, I even read for you earlier, get out, go, take everything, go out and worship. And even in fulfillment of that promise in Genesis 15, verse 13 that I was talking about, even there it talks about how you're going to plunder those people you've taken out. The, the night in which Israel left they plundered all the Egyptians. Hey, give us your gold, give us your jewelry, and they give it to, and then they just took off with it. So willing were they. They wanted just to get out. Chapter 11, verse 4 of, of Exodus. God explains what He was going to do in, to the trial. He says, About midnight, I'm going to go out in the midst of Egypt. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstone, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and never shall be again. I just think about the cries going up in um, Japan today. Right, The disaster has taken place over this past week of the earthquake there, the nuclear meltdown, the, the troubles, the tsunami, the earthquake that hit and the turmoil there. The, the crying there is nothing like the crying here that took place in Egypt. But against any of the sons of Israel, not even a dog will bark. Whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes distinction between Israel and Egypt. This by far was the worst of all the plagues. I think it's worse because it wasn't reversible. I mean, all the other plagues were reversible. Either, either when they, they left, everything was back to normal. Or in time, they would be back to normal. Like water in the Nile, when it was restored, all was well. And when the frogs, gnats, and swarms of insects left the land, all was back to normal. Right? No need for your mosquito spray anymore. It's fine. When the pestilence came upon the livestock, right? Some some livestock died, and the pestilence you can always raise up some more. And the hail fell and damaged the crop. It just take another season for the grain to be restored. After the darkness came light, and the boils came. You eventually would be healed. But this plague was different. When a family member dies, there's no replacing him. No replacing your firstborn son. The promise here that God would touch every house, firstborn in every house would die. The cry among the people was great. But there was a way out. And the way out was called the Passover lamb. The people of Israel were to take a lamb for each household. If the household wasn't big enough, they'd combine several households together so that they could have enough for the household all to eat. Because they wanted to eat it all up. If they didn't eat it up, they would burn it. But they want to take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, a male, a year old. Could it be a, a sheep or a goat? didn't really matter. But you want to take a one-year-old ram, lamb, take him into your house for four days, and then after four days, you kill the lamb when the sun goes down. So at twilight, that's when you kill your lamb. Have your dinner. 
And then you collect some of the blood into a basin. And then you take a, a hyssop and you, you take it and you paint the doorposts of your houses, sprinkle into doorposts and on the lintel on the top of the house. You, you're painting this blood the outside. And the Lord said, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on your houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. There's where we get our name. Pass over. Here's the angel of death coming, the Lord Himself. He's going to come through there and He says, if there's blood there, I will pass over that house. If there's blood on the outside, I'm going to pass over that. In fact, I'm going to be so inconspicuous, not even a dog will bark. I'm not going to disturb anything if I see the blood. But if I don't see the blood... I'm entering and I'm going to destroy, discerning which among the children here is the firstborn and destroy the firstborn. And even in the, the barn, if there's a firstborn animal there, I'm going to destroy it. Moses took these instructions, told the elders of Israel, who then passed it on to the rest of the Hebrews, and it happened. The Israelites took lambs into their homes. Four days later, they slaughtered them. They took... The hyssop dipped it in the blood in the basin, applied it to lintel and the two doorposts or houses at midnight. They were expecting it to happen, the, the Lord to pass through and smite the Egyptians while passing over the Jewish homes. And that's what happened. And when the firstborn had died, there was a, a great cry. And it says in Exodus 12, verse 30, Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home well, there's not someone dead. No home. Not someone dead. And then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among you. My, both you and the sons of Israel, go worship the Lord as you said. Go, just leave. Angry, distraught, mourning, sorrowful. Finally, because it touched him and it touched his heart more deeply than anything else ever did. And I just need to pause at this moment and just say, isn't this a great picture of the Gospel? Right? Is that the blood applied causes God to pass over. When you think of the blood of a lamb as the blood of Jesus, when it's applied to the doorposts of our soul, when it comes to judgment, God will pass over our sins so that we will not die. That's the glories of the Gospel. Is just painting this blood on the doorpost saves a house from death. And so believing and trusting in the blood of Jesus in our own life causes God to pass over our life in judgment so we can live. And that's, that's the best news of any that there is. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5-7 that Christ is our Passover who has been sacrificed. Because the, the blood of Jesus allows us to escape and sets us free from the punishment and the death we deserve. We are like Egyptians. We deserve death. And yet, by the grace of God, through faith, God passes over our sins if we but believe in Christ. It's the glories of the Gospel. It's for all who believe. And in fact, you even see here the inclusion of the people in verse 28. It starts off Moses keeping the Passover. But what that meant was that Moses basically passed on the Passover the instructions over that to all the people of Israel. 
And so that uh, he who destroyed the firstborn in Egypt would not touch them. We see it now starting to come to Israel as well. We see faith of all the people in Israel who said, okay, that's what God says I'm going to do. Then that's what I'm going to do. Can you imagine the Jewish people that night? Moses tells you to take this blood from this animal you just slaughtered, put it in a basin, and then paint it from the doorpost of your house and then all will be well. I mean, I think it sounds a bit strange to me. I mean, I think about blood on a doorpost at night when it's no, no lamps, you know, right? No lamp posts, no light, no city light, very pretty dark. You can hardly tell, I think, whether there is blood there or not. Well, God certainly can tell. That's really not a problem. And that little blood there is going to protect us? Is that really true? I mean, think about all the doubts the people of Israel could have had. Could have been many. And yet, listen, when God sets the rules, you better follow Him. If He says, blood on the doorpost of your houses sets you safe, let's put blood on the doorpost of our houses. If that's what it takes. If God told you to do some other kind of crazy thing just to help protect your home, right? Like, uh, sleep on the floor and then you'll be protected. Like, okay, well, let's sleep on the floor. Some, whatever God says, but the way God has set up the universe is this. Simply repent, turn from your sins, believe and trust Christ, and you live. Now, there, there, there are many today who think the Gospel strange for this very reason. They say, I simply need to believe in Jesus and God will justify me? I mean, don't, don't I need to do anything? Isn't, isn't there some work i got to do? I mean, give money to the church or, or go someplace or do something. Isn't there something I have to do? I mean, surely it doesn't make any sense that it's a, it's a free gift, it's grace. Everything else on earth, there's no such thing as a free lunch and there's no such thing as free salvation. How can that take place? How can that be true? How can God overlook my sins simply because I believe something? How is it that Jesus receives my punishment if I believe? What do I have to do? And for this reason, many people stumble over the cross. They refuse to repent. They refuse to believe. They find the Gospel to be foolish and inoffensive because it's not something we do. Rather, it's something that God does by grace, through faith. In fact, God does salvation in such a way that it's all of Him so that we might have nothing to boast about. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. People find it difficult to grasp, not because it's hard to understand, but it goes against the grain of our thinking. We think we need to earn everything, especially Americans. We're hard, self-made people, right? We've worked for what we have. But when it comes to God, it's by grace that He saves us. Right? And if God says He saves us by grace today, just by believing and trusting in Him, well, that's what I'll do. And I trust that's what you'll do as well. It's so simple, it's so easy, just... Just trust Christ just with everything you have. That's hard to do. It's simple, but it's hard. As we talked about last night, you can choose the reproach of Christ over the treasures of Egypt. That's what you have to do. Choose Jesus over the treasures of wealthy America. Be willing to face the reproaches of Christ rather than treasures of Egypt. Be be willing to be... um, mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. That's what it means to believe and trust. It's not simply just, hey, say in a prayer. It's not just, uh, you know, believe in something in your mind. It's a, it's a trust. It's laying down on Jesus everything 
that we have in all of our life. And if you do that, the promise of the Scripture is that you'll face no death. Just like the Israelites who escaped the one who destroyed the firstborn. And God won't touch us either if we have faith and trust in Him. Let's go. There's no fear leaving Egypt. There's no death leaving Egypt. Thirdly, there's no more Egyptians. Verse 29 By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. At this point, we see the scope of faith extending beyond Moses. The subject of verse 29 is plural. It says that they, plural by faith, passed through the Red Sea. Now, what's interesting here in verse 29 is when you read the account of Exodus, you're going to start scratching your head and say, okay, not quite matching up, matching up here. Here in the verse 29, you get the sense the Israelites exited Egypt in triumph, glorious. Oh yes, we believe everything God says. And they just marched right through the Red Sea in triumph. Well, in history, is a bit different than that. The Israelites went out and soon afterwards, Scripture is very clear is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he might chase them into the wilderness so that God might be further glorified. The plan of God, this is all, so that God will be glorified through Pharaoh and his army. So at one point, Pharaoh says, get out. And then God comes. This hardens Pharaoh's heart, so he's going to pursue them. But God knew all along, in the pursuit there, he's going to destroy the Egyptians and thereby get glory for himself as the people of God can tell the story down through the ages of how our God is a great gloriously delivering God. There's a big song. Right? Exodus chapter 15. The horse and the rider is thrown into the sea. Look at how powerful God is. He's more powerful than all the Egyptians put together. But, we see Pharaoh drawing near. Exodus 14, verse 10. The sons of Israel looking at the Egyptians marching after them and they became very frightened. They were fearing. Moses had conquered this fear thing, but the Egyptian, the Israelites hadn't. They cried out to the Lord. But it wasn't only the Lord they cried out. They also cried out to Moses. They complained, saying this. Listen to what they said. Exodus 14, verse 11 and 12. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And you read that and you say, well, that's anything but faith. It's a complaint. They should have read Philippians 2.15, do all things without grumbling or disputing. But they were disputing here. Fear. It's lack of faith. And yet Moses was standing in faith without fear. Hebrews, Exodus 14, verse 13, Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. How hard is that? Letting God fight for you when you keep silent? But perhaps verse 29, although it says they passed through the Red Sea by faith, a lot of it says Moses certainly had faith. He didn't fear anything. He said, God is going to deliver you. You just wait. You'll be silent and God still will deliver you. And you know the story, right? Moses stretched out his hand across the sea. 
God swept the waters up by a strong east wind, turned back to us as dry land as the seas were divided. Sons of Israel walked through the dry land, and on the right hand and the left hand, it says, there's like a wall between them. They walked right across the land. Two million people. In fact, maybe even here's where you see a little bit of faith as well, is that you're here, you're scared of the Egyptians coming, and there's a wall that you can walk through there. It sure does be an impetus to your faith when you see these people coming to get you. Okay, we're going to walk this way. And uh, they walked by faith then through the, through the Red Sea. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit. Now, you think about it. How long did it take to get all of Israel through this sea? It could have taken them a while. It's pretty a little bit later because the Egyptians, they took up pursuit. Pharaoh's horses and the chariots start coming in. And then God, in His sovereignty, looked down upon the army and He brought the army into confusion. So here they are coming after them and God, while the people of Israel were silent, is confusing them making their wheels to swerve, driving with difficulty. And then the Egyptians even professed themselves. They said, let us flee from Israel. It's the Lord fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters come back over the Egyptians and the chariots and their horsemen. Indeed, that's what took place. He stretched his arm out. The sea came back over. The normal state, just right at daybreak is when that was taking place. So there's some night they're walking through. Maybe the Egyptians didn't understand quite what they were walking through. It was nighttime. They didn't understand this was the sea. I read one person this week who said, um, I can't understand why the Egyptians followed after them. And he just says, probably was covered with darkness. didn't realize it was still the sea. But at dawn, at dawn break, they understood what was going on. All of Israel got to see Everything's taking place how God got glory for them as the water came and covered the chariots and the horsemen, Pharaoh's entire army, and not one of them remained. The enemy is gone. And then we hear the commentary of faith afterwards. Exodus 14, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and the Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. So you do see faith attributed to them, but maybe even after. afterwards. I just say this though, that here again we see grace, Right? I mean, one of the most comforting things of Hebrews 11 is that nobody in this list is perfect. Examples of failures, examples of doubts, examples of weak faith, and yet God shows grace through it all. He, he even gives regard to weak faith. I'm, I'm thankful for that. So maybe even a point of application might be like the first point here as you think about the fears you have in your life. You just even think here, what was the fears of the Israelites? They feared the coming onslaught of the Egyptians. And what, what did God do? Without even saying a word, He wiped away the Egyptians from their life. And will you have faith in God to, to wipe away the difficulties, the Egyptians coming after you? Wipe away so you don't see them anymore? God took care of them by the Red Sea. God can take care of your difficulty today, which aren't Egyptians but can be like Egyptians. We be like Moses and trust God. Say, don't fear. Don't fear. And when your heart starts to fear, you say, speak to your heart. Say, don't fear, O heart, but have faith and trust in the Lord. 
even to remove those things while you remain silent. I think those are, those are examples of ways in which we can learn from Moses, the people of Israel here, by not fearing the wrath of the king, not fearing the, the things that we fear, by trusting in the Gospel, verse 28, so that no death would touch us, and then realizing that God can, without us saying anything, wipe away Egyptians. So there's no more. And then, we could pick up the rest of the story, but there's a big gap here between verse 29 and verse 30. Verse 30 then goes to uh, another generation after wandering in the wilderness in which there was a lot of unfaith. Right? Remember the spies go into the land, they come back, and uh, two believe, ten don't. And uh, so they wander in the wilderness a generation until everyone 20 years and upward dies. And then a generation with faith comes in and conquer the walls of Jericho and there we see Rahab, which we will tackle next week. It's too much for us today. So let me pray and then we'll segue finishing our service in the Lord's Supper. Father, I would pray for these things of Moses that they might be true of us. God, that as we face the, the issues in our life, May we not fear. I just I think, oh God, of the unemployed men here, which affects their families. Think of those who, who fear then for the future what world events are going to bring, about children, about grandchildren. I would pray, Lord, that we would be able to conquer those, God, by faith, even as Moses did. Pray you'd cause us to trust the gospel. God, that we might know that in Jesus Christ our our sins are wiped away and they're gone and forgiven. So help us in these things, O Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.